Well, hey there, Todd. Just wanted to say that I thought this was a great idea about just learning about kind of your background. And I think we should go through various parts of your career and your your history. And why don't we just start at the beginning? Okay, Rob. Um, uh, thank you for this. Uh, when you came up with this idea, I was initially a little bit gun shy of it. Uh, but But then also I remember many, many times now as I've gotten older, thinking back that I wish that I had uh, recorded influential people in my career. And I'm not saying I'm anything influential, but I think every funeral director uh, has a story to tell, uh, particularly of uh, how they got into this, uh, because my uh, still, to this day, uh, half a century after I started, I still get the the uh, immature, very predictable question by many people, how can you stand uh, to be a funeral director? Uh, so every funeral director experiences this. And so I thought I was interested in this project because there is uh, some information that might be helpful uh, for the betterment of uh, our uh, profession in general, uh, that uh, people can uh, relate to this experience of how all this stuff came about. Um, you know, many uh, people in funeral service uh, know that I was born and raised uh, in Iowa. I was particularly, the geography is southwestern Iowa. Uh, we were about 40 miles uh, east of uh, Omaha, and so really, to be uh, honest about it, we were more uh, Nebraskan uh, than we were Iowa uh, because all of our TV stations came out of Omaha. Uh, the hospitals were all in Omaha. Uh, and um, so, and of course, Omaha is where eventually <clears throat> I started my career. Now, before we get into some of these accounts, I want to uh, make some disclaimer that I'm not an expert at this. I have made many, many, many mistakes in my career. Uh, and so I, I want to establish that the story is not a story of any type of excellence. Um, I was a weak student in school, uh, but it is a story about the influence of a, gen, gen, of a genuine love of all things to do with funeral service. I was never ever uh, exclusive when it came to um, a love uh, that I liked pre-need better than at need or I liked embalming better than funeral directing. I never ever was caught in that. Uh, and I'm very thankful uh, that, that I was uh, devotedly interested in everything uh, to do with funeral service. and. 50 years later, I still am. Um, so the Iowa thing, this was a small, very small farming community. My family uh, was one of the pioneer families of the eastern end of our county. Uh, the county that I was raised in was the second largest county in Iowa. Um, and it was named after an Indian tribe. But the county was so big 
as far as land mass went, that there were two courthouses, which was the only the only county in Iowa that had two courthouses. And one, the eastern courthouse, was in our little town. Um, the the uh, issue of uh, growing up in a small Iowa community, which was totally totally dependent on agriculture. There was no industry, there was no textile. This, this was, the, besides the funeral home, uh, the second largest employer in our town was the grain elevator. And uh, so this issue of farming and uh, community, um, gossip, uh, intrigue, uh, uh, just this is microcosm of life unfolded in front of my very eyes and I really wasn't savvy enough to even kind of figure it out while I was living it but looking back at it uh, it was uh, a, a petri dish it was the laboratory of what was going to happen for the rest of my life about people uh, personalities um, and the, one of the first lessons I learned in Iowa, uh, which I didn't like at all, was that I couldn't be all things to all people. I, um, and as I got into the funeral profession, I saw many, many funeral directors, myself included, that they tried to be all things to all people. They, were, uh, they became addicted to being well-liked and popular uh, by everybody, which of course is humanly uh, impossible. So in this little town, there were these lessons. Um, we knew everybody. I knew everybody in that town. I went back to my class reunion. And sorry, Todd, what's the name of the town? You know. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's Avoca, A-V-O-C-A. Um, it's a little, little town. You can look it up in the map. It's, uh, the, it's named after Avoca, Ireland. And Avoca, Ireland, there was a poet named Thomas More, and he wrote a poem called The Meeting of the Waters. And I've been to Avoca, Ireland when I was over there doing seminars for the Irish funeral directors. And, uh, and by golly, it's just like our little town in Iowa. Uh, the, the river comes down from the north, and it by bisects, goes into two branches to the east and west, and then it merges again in the south, and smack in the middle of that is this little town. Same way in Ireland, right? And you, you can't get to our little town in Iowa without going over a bridge. Oh, okay. And, uh, the, and the name of the county? Um, it's an Indian name, uh, multi-syllable, Potawatomi. Um, and... Um, my family, my grandfather, uh, came over in 1886 from Holland. They all came over from Holland, right? We didn't have any any relatives that weren't Dutch, and so and they went to they went to Iowa, right? Almost they went to New York, they went to Michigan, and they went to Iowa. These are like these little Dutch enclaves, and our group went out to Iowa. Um, you know, my grandfather used to say that we went, ended up in Western Iowa because we got tossed out of Michigan and New York, right, because of our lifestyles, right? And uh, he was just joking, of course. 
but um, the uh, they went out there because it reminded them of the terrain of the Netherlands, right? That it was great agricultural land. You know, I I go around in my travels and people talk about how fertile the soil is, and I look at the soil and I'm going, boy, that's not fertile compared to where I came from, right? The earth was as black as night and black as my shoes and uh, great farmland, great farmland. I mean, so my grandfather uh, and all of my aunts and uncles settled there and um, and they were literally pioneer family. I didn't realize uh, the um, I didn't realize the impact of my family's legacy out there until I left. Right. I mean, I, I was I couldn't wait to get out when I was a young man. I couldn't wait to shake that town. But now looking back at it, um, it was a it was a good life. Um, it was a good place to grow up. You know, we thought gay people were happy. Right. We thought pot was something you cooked in. Right. So there was a naivete to it. There's an innocence to it. Now, that doesn't mean there weren't a bunch of shenanigans going on, right? Because we're dealing with human beings. But it was a good place. So, interestingly, um, the house that I lived in um, was right across the street from the funeral home. And the funeral home was owned and operated by two brothers. And they, their father had started the funeral home the year the town was founded, right? So by the time I got on the scene, the Bluss brothers, uh, there was two brothers, Henry and Nobert Blust. Uh, they had been in business since 1869. So I'm growing up in the 1950s. And these Bluss brothers were, uh, they ran the furniture store downtown and they ran the ambulance service, right? The fire department didn't have anything to do with the ambulance service in those days. Um, and I wrote an article about the history of the ambulance, funeral home ambulance service, uh, which w in subsequent sessions, we're going to talk about the ambulance service, right? Because when I see these young funeral director students around here, and I start talking about the ambulance service, I might as well be talking about using moss as a medicinal treatment uh, for cancer, right? I mean, they look at me like, what in the devil is he talking about, right? Funeral home, right in the ambulance. But the Bless Brothers were um, influential people. Um, they weren't particularly, they were good embalmers, but they were both had severe hearing problems uh, and so their funerals were pretty rough, right? Because they couldn't hear. They, they couldn't hear when the service was over. They couldn't hear people giving them, giving them requests. But the bodies look great, right? The, 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 they were excellent embalmers. These two guys, I don't know. I wish I, they'd lived long enough. I could have picked their brain as to what chemicals they were using. But everybody in town, every, everybody in town, Okay, the funeral was a little rough to get Dad buried, but he looked really, really good, right? And uh, there's a lesson there. 
uh, for modern-day funeral services and that about the uh, importance of excellence in embalming. Even though people are embalming less than they've ever done before, it's still a worthwhile uh, endeavor. So anyway, uh, my grandmother, right, my grandmother, uh, who lived seven miles south of us, was a registered nurse. And um, because of our isolation, right, there were no community hospitals. The nearest hospital was 40 miles away. So because of that, uh, nurses uh, in our town, there were only a couple, became the expo facto doctors, right? If somebody got cut by a saw, if a farmer fell off a silo, if there was a farm accident, uh, if somebody was sick, and, and particularly somebody was dying, they would hire my grandmother. She was an excellent nurse. Uh, she um, had graduated from the Jenny Edmondson School of Nursing in 1909, and the course was uh, three months long. Um, but anyway, she got hired uh, and some of your listeners uh, who are from farming communities will will understand what I'm saying. City people tend to miss this, right? She got hired in the early 60s to nurse a woman who was dying in our town named Bertha Norton. Now, Bertha Norton's family, she married Charles Norton and the Norton family, and this is what I was referring to about rural communities, the Nortons were like local royalty in our town because they owned the John Deere dealership. So in little farming communities, if you have the International Harvester dealership or the Massey Ferguson dealership or the Alice Chalmers or the John Deere, your importance to that community was almost incalculable, right? Because during planting time, uh, all the farmers looked to the implement companies if the planter fell apart. And during harvest time, particularly, if the corn picker fell apart or if the combine fell apart, then you would take them into the Norton implement company. And so they were, everybody knew them and they were well thought of. They went to our church uh, I knew him, and Ch uh, Charles Norton died first, and my grandmother had nursed him. And then Mrs. Norton uh, died or got sick. Mrs. Norton, I suppose today we would have said she had Alzheimer's or s certainly senility, uh, dementia. She went from this vibrant uh, woman in our town to this um, shell of herself. Uh, death was not kind to her in any way. And, uh, and the first of many experiences in my career where death is not kind, right? It robbed her of every ounce of dignity she had. And they hired my grandmother to uh, nurse her, which was good news for uh, me, right? Because now instead of being seven miles away, she's seven blocks away. And so I could drive my bicycle over there. My mother and she had a tremendously uh, close relationship. 
as a mother-in-law and daughter-in-law, they used to sit at the kitchen table read, reading poetry to each other. Uh, and they'd pick out the prettiest poems. And it was just endearing to watch these two uh, communicate. And I would run patterns, uh, dress patterns. I'd run preserves. I'd run poetry in my bike down to the Norton house. And my grandmother was there. And I always would get a free piece of pie. Uh, I'd get a glass of iced tea. And But I was fascinated with Mrs. Norton. Uh, she was in the side bedroom, perfectly clean, but not her hair hadn't been done in weeks, uh, if not months. Uh, she didn't have her teeth in. She had Parkinson's disease, obviously, because she shook. She was going in the fetal position. And I remember as a kid, my grandmother prohibited me uh, very sternly from going down there and looking at her, which translated that I wanted to go down and look at her uh, as much as I possibly could. And uh, I would go, I'd look around the, uh, I'd look around the door jam and there she'd be staring off into space. She was uh, disconnected to temporal things. And, <clears throat> and one day uh, she, uh, she looked at me and started to scream, help me, help me, help me. Well, it just scared the bejesus out of me. Right. I'm, t I'm a 10 year old kid. I, I turned tail, run down the hallway and there stood my grandmother. And the look on her face was, you know, like the third ice age was moving in on me. And she said, I told you to leave that woman alone. She has trouble. And I listened for a while, but then I fell back into my routine. So one night, um, and this, this, I'm saying this story because People ask us, people in our profession, how did you get into this? And this was it for me. This was, this was the deal maker for me. About one night, uh, my parents came over and said that Mrs. Norton had died during the night and that we were going across the street to see her. And I remember protesting. I didn't want to go see her. Right. I mean, it's kind of like a Pavlov's dog psychology. Why would I go to see her after I'd gotten in so much bloody trouble seeing her down at the house? I always got into trouble when I'd go see her living or dead. I, I wasn't separating the two. And uh, no, 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 no. There was no babysitters in our town and children were going to go. It was simple as that. Children went to funerals and there was none of this yuppie cool, sexy stuff of this deep child psychology of should the child see a dead, that none of that happened in our town. Their children went to funerals and so off across the street we went. And I remember going into the funeral home and I don't mean to sound overly sentimental, um, but the minute I walked in uh, to the funeral home, I smelled flowers. Now that's a significant thing for me because um, my fondest memories of my grandmother to this day are the times that she and I went into her garden and I was just a little boy and we were picking flowers in her garden. She'd let me pick the pretty ones and um, 
and so flowers even to this day when I go into a funeral home and uh, flowers are there I always feel uh, that I'm on safe territory I never was um, um, I was never annoyed by flowers at funerals I was annoyed by some florists uh, at funerals and I was annoyed by some of the crappy flowers that they would send us and then we would always get blamed for it by the family the florist work there hell they didn't have any skin in the game so that kind of stuff used to get under my skin but I walked in and I smelled these flowers and all of a sudden I remember as a kid I was just maybe eight or nine ten and I went around the corner and there I saw at the end of this big room, it's just a big old house, it wasn't a modern mortuary, was Mrs. Norton laid uh, out and there were flowers all over the place. And I remember to this day walking up with my mother and I was tall enough I could see her and Rob, she just looked gorgeous. Her hair was perfectly done. They, I remember they had her in this casket. I don't know if it was metal or wood, but the interior of it was powder blue. And it had, now can you believe that? I was like eight, nine years old. And I, it had a, a dark blue rosette, a velvet rosette with a velvet blue drape up in the head panel. Um, and they had her in this gorgeous blue suit. Her hands weren't shaking. Her mouth was perfect because the, the Bless Brothers were good embalmers. And they'd known this woman all of her life, right? And I remember standing there, and I have to say this, it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever laid my eyes on. I had never seen something so beautiful in my life. And I remember looking at Mother and asking her, uh, why, do they, why do they have her in this treasure chest? And mother, tell, mother looked and she said, because she was a treasure. Uh, we all loved her very much. Now, I, I know we live in a very cynical, unsentimental time. And I can imagine some of your listeners are rolling their eyeballs that I need to pack it in, right? Because I'm telling stories. But that was it for me. I walked out of that funeral home. I didn't know a thing about embalming. I knew nothing about caskets. I didn't know anything about the value, purpose, and benefit of the funeral. Hell, I wouldn't have known accounts receivables from a pipe organ in a, in a funeral home. But I knew then that was what I was going to do. And I'm I'm not bragging. This is just historic fact. My My life is my argument with this. I have never veered off that. Thick or thin, all the mistakes, bungled damn things I've gotten involved with that didn't work out, I never, ever veered off of that. So I hope your listeners, when they hear this, would understand, and funeral professionals, of course, would, that there's substance to these decisions. Uh, usually people have an experience of why they became a funeral director, and you've you've just heard mine. Todd, that's a great first encounter with uh with death and it sounds too like a very valuable treasure for yourself with your your mother and your grandmother and mrs norton so that's that's great let's wrap up uh this one now and in the next time we get together what do we what do you think we'll just carry it on from there what so what's the next topic that we'll 
that we'll cover. Well, I think um, I think there's some stories that, uh, that your listeners might like that my father, uh, uh, who um, gave me an empty barn, we had an empty barn on our property, and he turned that over to me. And this might be a carrot for your listeners to tune in again. Um, by the time I was done with my little kingdom, I, uh, I had created my own fire station on the other side of the barn. I'd created my own funeral home and upstairs I'd uh, installed a gambling casino <laughs> and I was maybe, and I was maybe 11 years old. So I, this is, no, I was the most popular kid in the neighborhood because <laughs> kids love fires. Uh, we would have 10 or 12 fires a day. They love going to funerals. I would have five or six funerals a day, and then they love to gamble. <laughs> I figured that out. So anyway, that's okay. the next one. All right. Well, I'll look forward to it. Thanks, Todd. All right. Thank you, Rob.